This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of John, and today we're going to be in John chapter 10. Now, in studying for John chapter 10, I mean, as you read through it, we're going to see in a second, there's a lot about sheep and shepherds. And uh, I was trying to think the last time that I've seen a sheep. It's been a long time. And then actually it occurred to me that I think I was, it was actually in Umakao, um, uh, I think Jerry, which I'm not sure that they're here today. They did some uh, Young Life event out there, and I think that there was a sheep there. Um, and that was the last time that I've seen a sheep. And so I had to do a lot of research and reading to kind of figure out, like, what exactly is it that Jesus is appealing to here? And there's something fascinating that I learned. Because, you know, I've seen Babe. You guys have all seen Babe, you know, where, like, the pig, like, learns to herd the sheep uh, because it wants to be a sheep pig or sheep dog or whatever. Um, and so I just kind of figured that, like, shepherds have always used dogs. And maybe that was true in the first century as well, but we have a lot more evidence for in the first century the shepherds in Jesus' time actually just calling to them with their voice or maybe using like a little pipe or a whistle um, or a flute or thing and, and kind of playing a tune, and their sheep would know that tune, and that's how they would be called out to follow him wherever they were going. So when they're taking them out to pasture, that's how he'd call them, and then, or might call with his voice, and then as he brings them back in for safety at night. The sheep knew the voice. But in this passage, uh, Jesus is going to use this analogy to call us sheep, and he is our shepherd. Now, uh, if you guys remember Pastor Jeff, uh, one time I remember him standing up here and saying, nobody likes to be called sheep. Nobody likes to be followers. But this is the analogy that Jesus uses. Um, he calls us kind of these herd animals that aren't too bright but follow a voice. But he's also going to insinuate that those who would like to do harm to the sheep, uh, the way that they would go about it in the first century sometimes is either sneaking in to the place where the sheep were kept safe or they would imitate the call. They would pay attention to the tune that the shepherd was playing, and they said, if I play like that, I bet you I can get some of these sheep to follow me. I can lead them astray. And so the question that Jesus is answering in this text, and the question that I think is going to be before us, is how do we know which voice to follow? How do we know out of all of the voices calling to us, which voices are good? Jesus is going to address this question today in John chapter 10. So I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from John chapter 10. We're going to be beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay, lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of the one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever and calls to us. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. Have you guys ever been lost? Like truly lost? You know, like there's been some times that like, I thought I knew where I was going, but the GPS is never very far away from me. So I can't think of a specific instance where I've been really, really lost. However, my church growing up, a father and his son every summer would go camping in the Rocky Mountains. And one year when the son was 11 in 2007, uh, they went for, I think like a four day kind of trip. And on the second day, they were gonna hike out and camp someplace and then hike back the next day. Well, during that hike somewhere, they got off the trail a little bit. They took a wrong turn. And I think that they kind of realized it, but they figured, you know what, we have enough provisions to kind of get through this night and the next day uh, we'll, we'll handle it just fine. However, they realized that actually the trail that they had taken had left them above 10,000 feet. And so at this time of year, they were gonna be camping in like the 30s. They didn't really bring stuff to camp in the 30s. They thought they were gonna be camping a little bit lower. Uh, they only brought food for, for that day. So the next day they wake up, the father open up, opens up his maps. He looks at the mountain ridge around him and he's looking at his maps, trying to figure out to chart the course back. Thinking that he found it, they hike another seven miles through Colorado backcountry, only to be facing the second night. By this point, having gone through their food and water and been above 10,000 feet for so long, the father's having given the food and water to his son primarily, uh, is definitely beginning to feel the effects of altitude sickness and exposure, and they don't have the resources that they need. They go through their second night, and the third morning, the father realizes that he doesn't have much to go on. Just three days in, he's wondering what they're going to do. They haven't seen people. They're on this trail, kind of on this back trail, and they don't know where they are. And sometime around afternoon, an off-duty ranger crosses their path. And they hadn't been gone long enough yet for his wife to begin worrying where they were, so no one was looking for them yet. And although I can't imagine the feeling, I could remember Dan sitting in the room telling us the story and seeing the relief on his face as he could describe what it was like to see that off-duty ranger. He knew that no one was looking, and yet they were found. You know, in critical times in our lives, when we feel lost, there's a lot of voices that may be calling out to us, that might be giving us advice. Sometimes they're family members, sometimes they're our own voices calling out to us. 
Uh, sometimes we think that we know the course that we're supposed to chart to get back to safety. Um, and out of all of these voices, we begin to wonder which one is the right one. Which one should we follow? Which one is good? Which one is for us? I think that this can be most clearly seen during some of those like highly um, tense moments in our lives, just like, you know, when we're actually lost. Uh, but when we're sitting in our lives uh, in the midst of major career changes, we've just lost our job. During major marital strife, during the loss of a loved one, we're wondering how we acclimate. Where do we go from here? Whose voice should I follow? And we follow a lot of voices. Um, there's a lot on, on display. Um, so actually, we're in John chapter 10. Uh, if we were to go back to John chapter 9, you would read this story about a man born blind. Now, Jesus heals this man born blind, and it really bothers the Pharisees. Um, and so the Pharisees bring this man born blind before him, and they start questioning him. And kind of all of their uh, insinuating, although sometimes it's less, less than directly insinuating, is that, well, he had done some sort of sin to be born blind, or at least his parents had. I mean, they even interrogate his parents. So this, these voices, these religious voices that are supposed to be leading this man are actually leaving him vulnerable and exposed, even before he's healed. Now, Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, and they actually take it out on the man, the blind man. So that by the end of chapter 9, you can see that they actually cast him out. The Pharisees said, you don't belong in our community anymore. You didn't when you were blind, you were ostracized, and now that you're healed, we don't want you here. We're a community built off of self-righteousness. The voices that he was calling out to, in some sense, or that he was looking to guide him in this transition, had actually betrayed him. The voices that we look to in our life, a lot of them betray us. Sometimes they're even religious leaders. And actually, what Jesus is doing here is actually, so in the beginning of chapter 10, he approaches this man born blind, and he's speaking to this man born blind, but he's also speaking to the Pharisees because the Pharisees are kind of asking him questions. And then he begins this whole thing about shepherds and sheep. And I think that for most of us, we can kind of, like, if you were in the situation, you're like, why doesn't Jesus just talk directly? Why is he talking about shepherds and sheep? Well, most certainly Jesus is actually referring to Ezekiel 34. Now, Ezekiel 34, we read some of it for our Old Testament reading. Um, and if you were to go a little bit before that, this is written 600 years before Jesus would live. Okay, 600 years. This is what God has to say to the shepherds of Israel. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. 
What Jesus is doing in the beginning of chapter 10 and the reason that he goes to shepherds and sheep is actually to look at the leaders, one of the voices calling out who gave themselves the authority to say, this is what you should do to be, this is the right path. What do you do when you're afraid? What do you do to be made right? You follow this path. And Jesus is saying, these leaders have betrayed you. These leaders have followed something else. They followed a different voice and they have not followed the true shepherd. Now, the voices that are calling out to us are a little bit different. I think the easiest and most clearest to see, they could be religious leaders who have fallen into these other things, but are really how we give ourselves over to sin. So as religious leaders themselves give themselves over to sin, maybe having been deprived of, of money, of basic living necessities, of having been in poverty, the opportunity to make more is always the right option. And so greed begins to set in as I don't just need enough, I need a little bit more. Maybe having been despised and looked over in your life in these focal moments, you see an opportunity to make a name for yourself. And so pride begins to set in. You know what the right path is? My own name. Maybe having been left alone, abandoned and abused, you start to believe that something else is going to fill that space and so lust starts to fill that space. Will this finally give me what I've been missing? All of these voices call out to us and in the moment they seem like the perfect answer. They seem like the perfect answer. But here's what Jesus has to say to these false shepherds. Not only do they sneak in at the beginning of the passage, they enter by another way in verse 1. But in verses 12 through 13, ultimately you see what they do. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. What Jesus' point is making, and what he's making about which voice to follow and why you should follow his voice, is he's saying, I actually care for you. These other things do not. The prideful boss ruins the company because she's unwilling to be wrong. The greedy husband works believing that he's providing for his family when really he's depriving his family of himself. The lustful man trains himself to never find satisfaction, though that is what he desires most. These voices, these shepherds call to us, and they seem like wisdom in the moment, but ultimately, when you've walked that path enough, you realize that it is empty. You are unknown, that you are exposed, and that you are enslaved. So if this is what deceptive leaders do, and Jesus cares for the sheep, what does this care look like for us? Well, instead of being unknown, it means that Jesus actually knows who you are. In verse 3, it says that he's called you by name. Now, shepherds, keeping track of their sheep, right, most certainly had to at least count them. They had to know how many they had, right? But you'd imagine that after doing this day after day after day, you would know the sheep pretty well. And it's not unreasonable to believe that they gave them names. But regardless of whether or not they actually did this in the first century, what Jesus is saying is he does actually know your name. 
He actually knows the ways that you tend to stray. He knows when you pass through certain areas while following him, that this is going to be the area where you tend to come off track. That's how well Jesus knows you. He calls his sheep by name. But not only that, he also knows that you're not perfect sheep, that you're wanting to be led astray by your own heart and by the things that you have sinned and been sinned against. And so then he changes the analogy some in verse nine, instead of being the shepherd, he's the door to the sheep. And he says, if you come in through me, then you'll find security, you'll find safety. And then if you go out through me, you'll find green pastures. So it's kind of two sides to this coin where he's saying, I see your vulnerabilities. I see the ways that you have sinned, that where you say, if they only knew who I really was, this would be over. And Jesus says, I actually give you a more permanent identity. They may find out who this is, but this doesn't define you. I define you. In the ways that you've been sinned against and wounded he, wounded, he also gives you security inside of the sheepfold. You pass through Jesus and he, he binds those wounds. He provides healing. You may never get offered repentance from those that have offended you. But in Jesus, you can find healing. So Jesus provides securities against our vulnerabilities, but he also provides freedom against what would enslave us. Because we all know that eventually these sins that control us, they start, or that we, we give our ear to, they start to control us. They start making us do things that we would not, we'd rather not do. These other voices make us people that we don't like, and we are enslaved to them. But Jesus says that when they go in and out and they'll find pasture, and he's referencing, and if you read back in Ezekiel 34, he'll talk about what this pasture looks like. And it's like dwelling in the land and your children's children dwelling in the land. And it is good and it is overflowing. He says that I have created a space for you. Far from being meaningless, if you let these other identities that you're clutching onto go, you will find true meaning in me. So the first thing that we learn about how Jesus's voice is different than the other voices calling out, what makes him truly the good shepherd is that he cares for us. And he cares for us individually. He calls you by name. He gives you security and freedoms. But it's not just an individualistic care. It's also a communal care. Uh, when we give our ears to other shepherds, not only does it leave us uh, personally unknown, vulnerable, and exposed um, individually, but has implications for how we relate to other people. Because if we're unknown, we're going to have guards up against other people. We're never going to know one another. We're never going to, we're going to be about ourselves and not about others. We can't actually serve other people. Now, sometimes we use examples from history and we can abuse these examples. Uh, and it's always easier to use another nation's uh, examples than your own. So at risk of all of these things, um, I do kind of want to explore that age-old question of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. How is it that the Germans didn't know? How did they not know? Now, there are many answers that we could historically explore. 
This is a very complex question. But in 1924, the Nazi party received 6% of the national vote. And in 1928, it went down to 2.6. Hitler and his national party were a declining political force, marginalized at best. But something would happen in 1929 that would make people desperately search for any voice that has an answer. And that'd be the stock market crash in the Great Depression. And as people lost everything that gave them their identity, they were desperately clutching out at someone that would have an answer. So that by 1930, the Nazi party would receive 18% of the vote. And by 1932, just four years after having 2.6 of the vote, they would have 37% of the vote. Historians will say that between the years of 1930 and 1933, when, when their popularity is growing the fastest, the Nazi party was actually downplaying their anti-Semitic rhetoric. They were giving a vision of a unified Germany. They're saying, this is what Germany can look like. We'll play down these other things, but this is what Germany will be. But this vision would prove to not bring unity to Germany, but division it would cost some six million Germans. This particular view of unity and communal working together would be dangerous. You see, sheep tend to go astray, but we tend to downplay the effect that a lot of sheep can have going the wrong way. How they can increase plausibility structures for ideas that may have seemed otherwise implausible. How peer pressure, fear, and manipulation can take root as the norm. The fact of the matter is, is that when a group of people come around a unifying voice, it has powerful implications for the entire group. What kind of implications is Jesus' unifying voice going to have for his community? You see, Jesus acknowledges that he's building a flock. In verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And again, if we go back to Ezekiel 34, we can see some ideas that he's bringing in because... Um, in John, let's see, so there will be one flock, one shepherd, verse 16. Um, in Ezekiel 34, God says, I will set up over them one shepherd. So what Jesus is doing is he's drawing on this ancient idea of one people. He's drawing on this ancient idea of unity. He's drawing on this ancient idea of who these people are going to be oriented towards and what their community is going to be marked by. Other voices do not bring unity. They may bring a unity that unites one group over and against another, but they don't bring true unity. In verse 16 of John 10, coming back to our passage, when Jesus says that there's other sheep that he's bringing in, in verse 16, he'll describe how this is going to happen. How is it going to be that there's going to be this unity when there was division before. And in verse 15, he says that I lay down my life for the sheep. Self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice proves their love for one another. 
What was self-sacrifice going to look like for Jesus' audience, for the Pharisees that he was talking to? Well, in the immediate context of the New Testament, we know that the Gentiles are about to be folded in, and that's who Jesus is referencing. He's saying, I'm calling my sheep out of this fold, and they're going to follow my voice, and I have other sheep that I'm going to call too, and I'm going to fold them in. There's going to be one flock and one shepherd. But you know, if you've read through uh, the rest of your Bibles, you'll know that that was exceptionally difficult to do. (laughs) They didn't get along very well. There was lots of strife. What was it going to take? It was going to take a self-sacrifice from both parties. They're going to have to die to themselves in imitation of Jesus. And see, that's the thing. When Jesus calls his community out, his community follows him. And this following is an imitation of the very things that he does. And the very things that Jesus does is lay down his life for his friends. So what does living in this community look like for us? First and foremost, it means that we rest in the flock that Jesus is creating. And sometimes we don't like the flock that Jesus is creating. And if I can just back up, we could, we could kind of focus on this on, 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 in many different levels. Um, but if I could just back up to kind of church divisions. There's a unity in those who follow the shepherd's voice that we should not do damage to. We're supposed to treat people, people tenderly, even as ourselves have been wayward sheep and brought back by the good shepherd who sp- spoke to us by name and brought us in security and freedom, that as we interact with other believers, that we are actually tender with them, knowing our own wayward selves. To those that Jesus brings to the flock that don't have experience with Christianity, we are also tender. We show them just how far Jesus would go. We Christians can be awfully vindictive, awfully arrogant, and awfully prideful about who we believe should be in our communities and who shouldn't be. And how is this unity going to be accomplished? It's going to be accomplished by self-sacrifice. It looks like dying to ourselves in order to worship with our brothers and sisters. That might mean dying to your music preferences. It might mean dying to your prayer preferences. It might mean dying to your schedule about when your community group meets. It might mean actually pursuing those people in the church that kind of rub you the wrong way. It means not just finding the church that fills all of your felt needs, but actually finding the church where God is calling you to serve his flock. If you're doubting that this is what Jesus is talking about, just a couple chapters later in John 13, Jesus will say, do you know how people are going to know you're my disciples? That you love one another. And a few chapters after that in John 15, he's going to say, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The community that Jesus is creating is unified by their self-sacrifice and following the one shepherd. What makes us one community is that we follow the one shepherd. Now, I do have to acknowledge, right? I brought up the church divisions. There's a lot of churches. If you didn't know, we're Presbyterian. 
There's Baptists, non-denominational, Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox. We could go on and on. Plenty of denominations. If Jesus is the voice that we are supposed to be following, and what Jesus is going to bring is unity, it doesn't look like he's doing a very good job. And maybe the easiest answer that I can give is by actually comparing it to how he cares for us personally. You see, we know that Jesus does actually bring us in and bind our wounds. But we know that some wounds last until death. And we do know that actually death does come unless Jesus comes first. Jesus, in his plan of time, has allowed us to live in what we call sometimes the already and the not yet. We know that Jesus has accomplished everlasting life for us, but we don't actually experience that everlasting life right now. We experience foretastes of it, but someday death calls us home. It's already accomplished, but we don't yet experience it. And so when there is disunity in the church, it actually breaks our hearts. It breaks our hearts. And maybe the easiest way to say it is that faithful sheep continue to follow the shepherd. And so we have this idea of of what we call the visible and the invisible church, and I'm not going to get too far into it. Basically, there's a lot of churches that are visible that we see with our own eyes, but the invisible church are all of those across all churches and all denominations who actually hear the shepherd's voice and follow him. And in that body, there will be unity because the shepherd himself makes sure that it's there. They will hear my call. They will answer. They will follow. I will care for them. So Jesus is the good shepherd. His voice calls out to us. And we who have faith in him hear his voice and respond. But in all honesty, I think that sometimes we believe that these other voices that are calling out to us, these other sins, these other maybe religious leaders that have been deceived by their own ways, you know, they seem to be working pretty well for us, actually. Certain cultural truths seem expedient. You do you seems quite expedient. It allows us to get along in our lives. And greed might actually afford you a fair bit of social capital. Your hard work is paid off and now you're reaping the rewards. Why would I follow something that isn't working where I would have to die to myself? Pride never did what's best for you. Greed never stops but consumes everything in its past path. Lust never satisfied. The cultural voices blow in whichever direction the majority consents to. But Jesus in verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How do we know that Jesus is good? It's because he didn't do what was best for himself, but what was best for you. He died for you. He died to call you by name. He died to make you secure, to give you freedom, 
to give you a community of believers that are marked by self-sacrificial love. But Jesus' task doesn't just end with his death. In verses 17 and 18, you can see those phrases that he takes up his life again and that he has authority to do so because Jesus isn't just some dead shepherd who gave us a good example to follow, but is lying in the ground somewhere. He is the shepherd that is alive and still continues to call us by name, still continues to bind our wounds, still continues to provide us community, and still continues to guide and die and and provide for his sheep with his life. Jesus is indeed the good shepherd. Would you pray with me? Father, we don't particularly like being called sheep and followers, people who are easily led astray, who are easily duped. We like to believe that we can carve our own path but we also know that Jesus' words are true. We know that we follow many other shepherds. We follow many other voices that leave us exposed and vulnerable and enslaved. We follow voices that destroy community and cause division. We participate in this very thing. But Lord, we thank you We thank you that Jesus calls us by name to rest in his care, that he calls us individually and he calls us communally, that we are not left alone and that his resurrection power, he has called us to new life, to resurrected life. Father, may we continue to follow the shepherd's call. Amen.